we've been talking about how, you know, Paul wrote this, this piece, this fourth chapter, this letter to the Philippians, really, was when he was under arrest in a house. He was confined. And really, the overriding theme of the book, as we've been talking about, is joy. Kind of summed up in the fourth verse of the fourth chapter. Just put it up real quick, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, even rejoice some more. Basically, he's saying, live in a rejoicing way of life. Let joy be a characteristic of our life. He's talking about that. He's contending for it. Uh, So much of this is connected to having the Lord's joy in in our lives, even when things are not going well. And inevitably, there will be seasons in our life where things are not going well or where they're challenging, maybe even a little discouraging. Now, remember, where Paul writes this, he isn't a free man. He's actually in a place of confinement himself. He's under house arrest again in Rome. It had always been his dream to go to Rome. He could talk about the Lord in Rome was one of his dreams. He gets to Rome, but he's a prisoner. He's not technically thrown as a, into a, you know, a hardcore prison, or he's, he's not uh, necessarily considered a felon by Rome, but he is considered a political prisoner. And his, his future is not only um, unclear, but it's not even, it's not even sh- he's not even sure if he's going to live. Okay, the, the, the possibility exists that he will not make it through this, that he, he may die. He may have capital punishment at the, at the hands of Rome. If Rome views him to be a person guilty of sedition, he will, he will um, be finished. So Paul is sitting in this place under house arrest. He's got a Roman guard attached to him, goes with him wherever he goes. Can't really go into the public square, talk about Jesus. He can entertain guests. The guard seems to be a sympathetic one. But the bottom line is this. He's not free. And he doesn't know what his future is going to look like. So he has both a degree of confinement in his life, feeling trapped, and also an uncertainty about what will happen in the future. You com- that, that would have been enough to, to really discourage somebody. But then on top of that, remember we talked about the different challenges that Paul had at this time? I mean, one, he was financially uh, becoming increasingly dependent on the graciousness of the churches. Because for, for in many, up to this point in his life, he had never really had to, in ministry, he had never really had to depend on churches to support him. But now he was at a point where he couldn't make any money. Uh, he needed to pay for the expenses. Remember we talked about how Rome set it up? You, you, were in, you were in under house arrest. You had a degree of freedom, but you got to pay your own bills. You had to pay for your own guard. I mean, it was very ingenious. And so they, they had it set up to where he had, so he had all these expenses. He needed funds. He hated being dependent. Oh, it's... It, it, it hurt, it really bothered him, but he had no choice. He was extraordinarily gra- grateful to the people who came through for him, the churches that came through. So I say that, he had financial issues. We also know that many of the young churches that he planted had uh, divisions that were going on. Remember the church of Philippi in the fourth chapter, he talks about the division even in this church, which is a relatively healthy church, had a division going on between two of the leading women in the church. And that was going on all over the place. So he had all these people, divisional, organizational issues. He couldn't get there. He was stuck. So he has the frustration of, of feeling a burden, but not really being able to do much. It, and, and really, he could entertain guests at times. He, the one thing he could do is he could write, and he wrote a lot in this particular situation. We know that, for just a historical side note, Paul was actually imprisoned in Rome twice. The first time is this time, AD 60, 62, uh, it's during this time where he's awaiting, um, you know, whether he's going to be uh, acquitted or not. He writes these letters to the Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, uh, Philemon. He, he writes letters. He actually gets released. He ends up being able to do additional ministry for the next few years after that. He goes to Greece, to Macedonia, Asia Minor, and then even up to Spain. But eventually he's rearrested. 
this time as a felon. Under the infamous Nero, many, many Christians were martyred at that time. Followers of Jesus were martyred in Rome. And Paul, of course, he ends up not escaping that second arrest. He ends up getting beheaded. But at the time of this writing, he doesn't know what his future is going to be. On top of that, he's got an additional challenge. People are suggesting, and we talked about this in Philippians 1 last week, they're suggesting other teachers are undermining his credibility. There's an element of competition going on and rivalry. And so his credibility as an apostle is being undermined because of the situation he finds himself in. And it bothers him that he has to defend himself, but he does. But all these things are going on. The point is this. He had all kinds of reasons to be unjoyful, all kinds of reasons to be discouraged. You know, a lot of things that would have broken a lot of people, but, but Paul instead, you would think he would say, pray for me, right? I'm, going, I'm really going through a hard time. But he's the one encouraging the relatively free and blessed people of Philippi to, be, to stay joyful. I mean, it, it's, it's a total twist on the whole thing. And part of it is because, here's the reason why. Paul exhibits this quality that I really do think is worth emulating. He had this, this stubborn, optimistic faith. A stubborn, optimistic faith that just refused to allow the negativity of a situation to define him. He was confined, but he was free. He was bound, but he really wasn't. His spirit had a lot of reasons to be disappointed, but if anything, we see the joy of the Lord very present with him. It really is a reminder that just because circumstances are going against us, and they can go badly against us at times, just because our struggles may be real and genuine, it does not mean that the joy of the Lord and the peace of God is necessarily has to be far from us. In fact, sometimes it shows up most beautifully in these seasons of adversity. Now, keeping all that in mind, I want us to look at then these two verses. These two verses, which are picking up from where we've been, in the first few weeks, we've talked about Philippians 4, 1 through 6. I want to jump back into verse 6 of chapter 4. Look at it together. We'd like to read it because, again, they, in these two verses, these two jewels, really, are these amazing verses worth memorizing, worth committing to our heart, worth thinking about a lot. These two verses have so much to say about how to position ourselves, how to overcome pressure, how to, over, how to deal with anxiety in our lives, how to, talk, how to work through discouragement, how to move through uncertainty. Again, all the issues Paul was dealing with, these two verses have so much application for us. And um, you know what? Let's look at them. Paul writes this. This is from the New King James Version. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, verse 6, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, the first thing we look at here, and again, be anxious for nothing, you know, but in everything by prayer. I mean, we talked about last week how the the NLT version says, you know, uh, what is it? Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. It's great. What is prayer? A lot of times, you know, we talk about prayer. You know, to follow Jesus, we're going to need to grow. We have to learn how to pray. But I was saying, if we were to define prayer, how would we define prayer, at least in the context of what Jesus taught us, what the Scriptures teach us? One of the things we know for sure is that prayer um, has a lot to do with just being um, uh, real and honest, and, and, and it has to do with speaking our heart to the Lord. It has to do with talking and sharing, listening and pondering. It's, it's not just a one-sided thing, prayer. One of the things the Bible teaches us is that prayer in reality is conversation. It's conversation with God. And when we have conversation with someone, it's not just us doing all the talking. It's listening. 
it's interacting, there's a real exchange that occurs, right? That's when you have real, when we have conversation, we're giving and taking. It's, 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 it's an exchange. And prayer in many ways is designed to be a holy exchange. It's designed to be us sharing our heart with God and then listening for his voice, sometimes through his words, sometimes in our heart. But we sense him, sometimes, as I said, in, in conversations with others as we pray for one another and ask God's presence to be among us, and it comes. So sort of thinking about, well, what is the difference, though, here? It says, in everything, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication. What, what is supplication? That's an interesting word. We don't use it as much. What is the difference between prayer in a broad sense, conversation with God, and and you know, supplication. Supplication is more has a, has to do with a particular kind of prayer that is more earnest. It's it's more focused on our own needs. So when we talk about supplication, we're talking about bringing our concerns, bringing our our issue uh, before the Lord. It's it's like when we pray for God to do something for us that means something to us. We supplicate. We're asking him to show up in a given situation. Lord, here's my situation. I need you. And Paul says in everything, you know, don't worry about things. Learn how to, how to pray. Um, learn how to let God know about our needs. And then he says, but he throws in some, another phrase. He says, prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. All right, that's that third piece there, isn't it? That third piece, that thanksgiving piece is like the salt, it's the flavor. It's the accent. Because what is, it, what is he saying? When you make your case known before God in the, in the way in which you communicate your heart to him, make sure that as you're rolling out your needs that you also do so in a spirit of thanksgiving. This will keep us from getting too selfish, too focused on our own situation. We'll still say, retain a spirit of gratitude when we communicate with the Lord. So it's important, I think, when we're asking God to show up for us that we also thank him for things in this life. I, you know, I mean, I thank you for the gift of life, Lord. I thank you for being alive. I thank you for, um, you know, the people you've placed in my life. I thank you for who you are to me. I thank you for giving yourself, that you gave everything. I thank you for coming to show us the way. I thank you for life. I thank you for the beauty of this world. I thank you for the breath that's in me. I thank, about for, I thank you even for just being able to live. I know it's an imperfect world, God, but it's got so much beauty, too, and I, I'm so grateful. You see, the, you see what I'm saying? Gratefulness. I thank you for showing up, Lord, in the past, and I thank you that you've turned things around. I thank you you've spoken to me. I thank you you've given me your word. I mean, we can run a list down. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's what, that's what we're being told here. And we're told that when we do this, listen, something happens. And we can expect something as we share our concerns with the Lord with a spirit of gratitude in our heart. Something happens. Verse 7, look at it. And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. The peace of God. What is the peace of God? That settledness of heart, that, to use a phrase of generations past, that blessed assurance that comes to those who have let go and are trusting God with an outcome. And this idea of peace the peace of God that, that is not that is distinguished from something that is manipulated at a human level. It's a God thing. That peace of God. Now, in Isaiah 26, there's this great verse. I, th- I think a lot of us have heard this verse before, but not necessarily everyone. Isaiah 26.3 says this, that you will keep in perfect peace those who trust in you, all whose thoughts are, and I love the way this version renders it, fixed on you. The older version says, whose mind is stayed on you, 
whose thoughts are fixed on you. When something is fixed on something, it's, it's clipped in, it's fastened, it's on there, it's, it's locked in. I think, of, I think of a clipping, clipping in. I'm fixing myself on you, Lord. I'm choosing to place my focus on you. I'm fastened into you. I'm, I'm, I'm welcoming your peace into my life, into this situation, into these troubled waters. Sometimes those troubled waters are connected to things that are external. Sometimes they have to do with situations we find ourselves in, decisions we have to make, fear that's emerging. But a lot of times it has to do with things that are going on inside of our heart, inside of our life, struggles we're having, old habits that are attempting to reassert themselves back into our lives. Things that we want to leave behind. We don't want them. We, we want to walk in the way of the Lord. And they're, they're, hold, they're, they're kind of finding their way back in. God wants us to find our peace in him. He wants to teach us how to lock in. That peace that he gives, he wants to give it. But no, notice this. It's a peace that passes all understanding. But what does it do? It, it keeps our heart and mind. Go back to the verse again. We'll, we'll do, it surpasses all understanding. And what will it do? This peace that Paul's talking about. It will guard it's an interesting word he uses, guard, our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The word translated guard is actually a military term, and it means a sentinel on the watch. Perhaps the great apostle took a glance at the guard next to him when he was writing these words, the guard that was connected with the iron umbilical cord, right? And he, perhaps as he's writing, he says, ah, he's writing, you know, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. But, but as he stops there, he, perhaps he pauses. Ah, yes, that is what it means. That is what it means to be guarded by God's peace. Yes, yes. Nothing enters without, without first passing through him. Ah, guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. In other words, Right, All these nagging thoughts, insidious worries and concerns, all those anxious fears about what may or may not come to pass uh, are not allowed entry. If they somehow, and if, if they are somehow allowed to squeeze by, they are quickly apprehended. Why? Because the peace of God stands watch over my life. Just as real as that guard right there is standing next to me right now, watching whoever enters into this room. So the peace of God the peace of God is connected to me in an even more real way. And it will confront things that seek to have resonance in my mind and in my heart, my thoughts, and in my feelings. It will protect me. And also, if things squeeze by him, he will stop them. So it is with the peace of God. Some things get through to us, we, but not long, because the Lord's peace begins to work back into the situation as we fix ourselves on him. So keeping that in mind, let's push this further. Let's push it even further. Let's sit with this. Time that we have left. How do we apply it? Okay, there are the verses. Let's apply them. What do we see here? Number one, what we notice is this, that as a follower of Jesus, we're invited to honestly see this, share our desire with the Lord, our need with the Lord. Um, and uh, what does he say in verse six? Let your, let your request be made known. Share your heart. Share your heart. We're talking about an honest sharing here. Not, by the way, sharing with God our issue, not just as a point of information, not just to kind of, you know, let them know what's going on. I want to keep you in the loop here, Lord. No, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is an honest sharing that, because God knows. It, but what, why do we share? Because we're sharing our heart with him. We're sharing our need with him. It's like, you know what? The Lord cares about authentic, 
honest and real communication. And it's like so many of the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms are just these guttural, real prayers that are made. And that's why I love to read the Psalms when I'm going through a hard time. It's because in these places where we question God, when we're mad at people, when there are things that are happening that aren't good, we, we are, we're being invited to praise him, to be thankful at the same time. We're really having a struggle. It's so real. It's so gritty. It's so authentic. And uh, it's almost, there are times, actually, when you read, we read the Psalms where it almost seems like the psalmist is crossing over the line into accusing God of something. Like, you're not showing up for me. Like, where are you? That it's, it's, and again, I'm not suggesting that it's okay to cross that line of the sacred and the holy into the profane and the disrespectful, but there is a, de- listen, there is a desperate kind of honesty that, um, that God is clearly not offended by. Uh, in fact, Jesus taught us this. Listen, I think, I think the Lord is more offended by disingenuous piety than he is by poorly framed, humble, honest prayers. You hear what I'm just saying? I think think God is more offended, as Jesus taught us, by a kind of self-righteous, well-framed communication that is disconnected from the heart and has no sense of its own need than he is from a, a, a fractured up, untidy, prayer that is real and flows out of the heart, and it may not even sound like much of a prayer. It might be pieces of things, but it's so honest. It's so genuine that the Lord is, is hearing it. And as I was sitting with this last night, I was thinking about it after service, and, and I was driving, and, and I was thinking about this particular thought, and my mind was reminded of, of a teaching that Jesus gave, a story that he taught. And it's actually in Luke 18, and so it's not in your handout, but I want to read it to you because it perfectly illustrates exactly what we just said there about what matters to God. And Jesus was talking, he was saying this in Luke 18, he was talking about these, it's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in this parable, Jesus says, let me tell you, let me tell you a story here. He says in this, he says, and Jesus told this story to some, some who had great confidence in their own righteousness, but they scorned everyone else. And so Jesus says, let me tell you a story. He says, there were two men. They went to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Considered a traitor to his people. Listen, he says, the Pharisee, Jesus says, stood by himself. And he prayed this prayer. And everybody was listening at this point. He said, I thank you, God, (laughs) that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Because I don't cheat, and I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Wow. I don't sin. Okay. Jesus says, but the tax collector... He stood at a distance because he was ashamed to even come close, but he stood at a distance. He didn't even lift his eyes. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he prayed. Instead, instead he beat his chest in sorrow. Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. 
difference. And Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, this sinner, more than this Pharisee, will return home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It has to do with a self-righteous, well-constructed, dignified prayer compared to an honest heart asking God for mercy. Now, one thing we know is if our concept of right and wrong is only defined by the culture, then we're probably never going to cry out for mercy because we're not going to think anything's wrong with us. But Jesus said there are definitely times in life when we need to cry out to God for mercy. And if our, our understanding of what is right and wrong is defined not by prevailing culture, but by what the scripture teaches us, then there will be times in our lives where we will have a choice. We will either begin to get very confident of our own selves, or we will be convicted at times of our own absolute need for God's mercy to work in our lives. And at those times, I am telling you, we are more close to God than we could ever be in the place in which we think we need nothing. The, 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 and it's not, it's not like, it's, it's, it's like to me, the Lord, he's telling us, I care about your heart. I care about real. Bring, with, bring me everything, all the garbage, all this that's real. Don't pretend it's, not, it's okay when it's not okay, but you come to me. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when that, he says, when that happens, heaven moves. But the prayer of the one who sees themselves never in need, Jesus says, and who is basically seeing, seeing themselves beyond the need of God. He says, that one's not going to get, God is unimpre unimpressed. So it starts with an honesty. Two, this passage reminds us of something else. Great truth, by the way, this one coming up. You and I, maybe it's going to happen, it's going to be such a meaningful thing for us at certain times in our lives, but there are times where we're reminded, again, let your request be made known unto God. It's an invitation to honestly, again, think about this idea, let your request be made known. I think of something as being rolled out. I think of a scroll being opened up. It's like, it's like, it's like what he's saying is, let your request be made known unto God. Open it up. Lay it out on the floor in front of him. Say, Lord, here it is. Here, here it is. Here it is. Here's where I'm at. Here, here, this is hard. This is how, I'm mad. I'm mad. I need you. I need you to show up. I'm frustrated. I'm discouraged. I, I, I don't feel like I have the strength to do this, Lord. I need you. I need you. Here it is. Here it is. The good, the bad, the ugly. It's all there. It's right before you. I lay it out. I lay it out before you. And that's one of the reasons why the Psalms are so powerful. I was thinking about the example of Psalm 69. This is why it's in your hand out there. Look what David does. David does the exact thing we're just talking about. Look what he does. And again, it doesn't matter how we say it. It's how real it is in our heart. That is a fact. That's what Jesus was saying. Who is he going to hear? The one who said it perfectly but has a disconnected heart and a judgmental spirit. Or the one whose heart is in alignment with him. Yes, maybe not getting it all right, but honest and asking God to show up. I'm going to tell you, Jesus said, that one I will show up for. That's a powerful thing. Look what David says. He says this, and he was feeling like he was getting it from every side. And David writes, save me, O God. Look, what he, look at the picturesque poetic language he uses to describe the desperation of his situation. Look at it. He says, save me, O God. And, I'm, and these were written with emotion. For the waters have come up to my neck. When it's on your, up to your neck, not a lot of airspace left. 
I'm in trouble, God. And this one, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Help me. Save me. Save me. Oh, God. There's a time to pray that prayer, by the way. I sink in deep mire. I'm stuck where there is no stand. I can't even get solid footing. I have come into deep waters where the floods are overflowing me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. I got nothing left. My eyes fail when I wait for my God. And besides all of that, Lord, I got so many people who are against me, he says, verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. I got people coming after me on every side. They are mighty. They are powerful people. They would destroy me. And my enemies, they, they, they be my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing from them. He says, I, I still must restore it. They're on my, on my trail. Lord, I need you. This is what he's saying in my life. And we may not have literal enemies, but we have things in our life that are pursuing us to pull us down. David goes on to say, verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you. Oh, Lord, in the acceptable time, oh, God, in the multitude of your mercy, there it is again, have mercy on me, oh, God. Hear me in the truth of your salvation. Oh, merciful Lord, deliver me out of the mire. Do not let me sink. Let me be delivered from those who, who would work against me, who hate me out of those deep waters. Verse 15, let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. And I love this. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness, it is good. We sang about that. Turn to me according to the multitude, the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily, Lord. There are times when we need to pray this prayer. We need to lay it out before God. Show up, God. Help me, Lord. Come near. Here it is. All of it, Lord. I'm no, no faking. No, no fronts, Lord. Just as real as I have. I might not even have the emotion to do it, but I'm going to trust you, Lord. And that leads into this final piece, and that is this. We're invited not only to trust him in an honest way, we're only invited to share with him in a way that is just spreading out our concerns, right? A comprehensive sharing. But we're also invited to just trust him in a way that gives him a, 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 an ability to, to calm the troubled hearts that are inside and to bring us his peace. We're talking about placing our trouble in his hands, right? And, share, and, and receiving his peace. We're talking about the, a surrendered sharing. And how can I say this? There are times where... And I love the imagery of this because there are times where the Lord just kind of invites us to literally to, to hand over our anxiety, our fear, or our concern, or our guilt, uh, or our apathy, or, or, or that anger. I don't know. I don't know. But he says, look, in prayer, listen, give it to me. Look at my, give it to me. Let it go. Yield it. Now, what happens when we do this? When we do this, we're open. What can, we, what can happen? I can now receive something. When I do this, I say, here, Lord, I give it to you. Now I am open to receive his peace. Now I am open. Lord, I give it to you. So I'm going to have to keep doing that, too. I give it to you. I receive your peace. I, I position my, see, I give it to you. I receive your Lord, I will not allow this thing to, to define me. I, I will not allow by your grace, Lord, I welcome you in. Sentinel on guard, I give this to you. Bring me your peace. You see? And when we do that, we create possibilities. And it's amazing what God can do. Because you know what Jesus said? It's the last verse we'll look at. He said this, my peace. Look, he says, 
loved ones. He was talking to his disciples, loved ones, talking to all of us. Listen to me. Listen to me. My peace I leave with you. I leave you your guardian. I give you my peace. I, I give you my peace. And it's not as the world gives. It's not manipulated. It's not circumstantial based. It's not even based upon mind-numbing or disconnecting from reality or losing ourself. It has to do with finding ourselves. Very different. Very different. Being very real, very aware, finding ourselves in Christ, welcoming his peace into these troubled waters of our soul. And I trust you, Lord. I trust you. I welcome you in. My hands are open. And one of the reasons I, I, I believe in praying, as so many of the Psalms, there have times where there's prayer postures. Sometimes we lift up our hands. Sometimes the hands are extended out. And part of, I love every, sometimes, Lord, I surrender, yes, but I'm also open to receive. Surrender, but open to receive. Now, now when, we, when we close this service, the psalm that we're closing with talks about this idea of, of giving things to the Lord. The, the chorus itself has to do with this phrase that is just, I, I love it. I'm, honestly, the first time I heard the song, I just, it just really connected with me personally, especially the part that says, if I've ever needed you, Lord, it's now. And then there's this phrase that says, we are desperate for your hand. We're reaching out. We're reaching. So I need you, and I'm reaching for you. You see it? I, and perhaps along the way, in these closing minutes, let's hold ourselves. No, no rush to get a, sit with this. Perhaps there are things the Lord is saying to us, and in a way we are saying this, Lord, I give them to you. I give it to you. I'm reaching to you. Give me. Help me. All right? So as we close, let's just kind of think about that with this final movement. Let me go ahead and pray. We'll have our time of giving, and we'll close out with the song. Lord, I just want to totally thank you for um, just being near to us. And I know you care so much about our lives. And you care about how we are living because, and how we are applying and how we're growing. Because at the end of the day, Lord, this is not about a faith just simply live for ourselves. It's about a faith that is to be shared. It's about a faith that is to be given away. It's about light and life. Your life at work in us so that we might give away your light to others. Not in a pharisaical way but always anchored in the knowledge that we are also ultimately sinners in need of mercy ourselves who have found a Savior. And you make all the difference, Lord. And so we welcome you in. We welcome you in by your mercy and grace into every dark corner of our lives. We welcome you in, Lord, to the angry and unforgiving places. We welcome you in to the questioning places and the discouraging places and the fearful places and even the shameful places. We welcome you in. Come, great Savior, and meet us, we pray. Because at the end of the day, we will know that you are more than enough. And there is no limit to your tender mercy. We thank you. We bless you. I pray that you'd bless our time of giving. Many of us committed in a very serious way. And, and Lord, on this song, which becomes for us and some of us, by the time we finish it up, an earnest prayer. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen. Amen.